You're listening to RTE Lyric Live. It should, on the face of it, be quite simple. You just take a series of notes, organise them into a tune with an elegant shape, a dying fall, as Orsino puts it in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, score it out for instruments, and then sit back and let the royalties roll in. Or you team up with a lyricist or librettist and pair your musical ideas with their verbal inspiration, and then before long, hey presto, you have a hit on your hands. And yet, the whole business of crafting a hit in Western art music is much more interesting and nuanced than that. What may have brought composers success in their day turns out in the long run not to have stood the test of time. What worked for the 18th century goose might not be to the taste of the 21st century gander. And from the opposite point of view, some of the works we prize most highly these days were flops that either confused or outraged their audiences at the time. In our interval, I'm going to be taking a look at four intriguing examples of great classical hits by our standards and to see how they went down at the time. Our first stop along the way is the Theatre of La Scala Milan on the evening of the 9th of March 1842 when this memorable tune was heard in public for the very first time. Fly, thought, on wings of gold, settle on the slopes and hills where the sweet air of our native land smells fragrant, soft and mild. The unforgettable opening lines of the chorus of the Hebrew slaves, which opens the second scene of Act 3 of Verdi's Nabucco, as the enslaved workers in chains are forced to labour on the banks of the Euphrates as they think back to happier times in their homeland. 
This is the first of Verdi's great patriotic choruses, born of a tremendously difficult time in the composer's own private life. As a young man trying to make a name for himself in Milan as an opera composer, he'd had to endure the death of his wife Margarita and their two infant children. In the depths of despair, and just about to jack in the whole venture, he was shown an opera libretto. Those very words to Vapensiero leapt out at him. He wrote the aria and the opera, and his work was an overnight success. That chorus of the Hebrew slaves in the third act was its standout moment. The audience went wild and insisted on an encore, something which was expressly forbidden by the Austrian authorities who ruled Milan at the time, for the very good reason that encores often turned into anti-Austrian demonstrations. And it was especially dangerous in this situation, where the Milanese audience could identify with the Hebrew slaves suffering under Babylonian rule. So Verdi believed it was with Nabucco that his career began. And when, almost six decades later, the life of this great Italian composer finally came to an end, and thousands of people lined the streets of Milan to pay tribute to him at his funeral procession, completely spontaneously they broke into song and sang this very chorus to pay tribute to Verdi, the man who himself had become an Italian hero. So far so honourable, but to... Return to our central idea of a popular hit, Verdi was very much in the business of, well, business. Commercial success was always high on his agenda, and he worked hard to try and achieve it. On the back of his triumph with Nabucco at La Scala in 1842, Verdi wrote one opera a year, sometimes two, over the next decade, an era he later referred to as his galley years. And while Italian opera in those days, as it always has been, is a fusion of many different art forms and commercial imperatives, Verdi knew that tunes were like gold dust. They had to be perfected first and then marketed to the max. So when it came to his 1851 opera Rigoletto, Verdi made sure he maximised the impact of its standout aria. He only revealed it to the cast and orchestra a few hours before the premiere, and even then he instructed them not to sing, whistle, or even think of the melody outside the theatre. Tough terms, but then Verdi knew his business. So Verdi is probably the best example of a hard-working musician who strived for excellence on the one hand and took his audience with him on the other. Someone with the common touch and with widespread support then and now. Other composers weren't so lucky in terms of how their work went down in their lifetimes. 
even though they might have written works that we revere today. Georges Bizet is the most striking example of that. His last and greatest work was Carmen, written for the Opéra Comique in Paris in 1875. And while on the outset Bizet's drama fits the conventions of the opéra comique genre, the spirit of what Bizet was creating reaches far beyond its limitations. In keeping with the new spirit of the times, Bizet's work was part of a new way of writing opera, seeking to portray on stage real people with real emotions. His central character is a great example of this. In an era in which most heroines were purity incarnate based on the spotless rose model, Carmen is something quite different, a rough-and-ready gypsy girl who's unconventional, sexy and daring. stuff for the conventional world of the Opéra Comique in Paris at the time. It took five arduous and strife-filled months to rehearse Carmen. The chorus and orchestra said that some of the music was impossible to perform. And you even had a situation where the theatre management were planting warning notices in the newspaper on the day of the premiere, one of which read, Carmen presents most unsavoury characters, in such bad taste that the work might very well be ill-advised. The 3rd of March, 1875, was an interesting day. That morning, Bizet was made a Chevalier de la Légion d'honneur, and that evening, Carmen opened. Predictably, perhaps, given all the shenanigans, the premiere was not a success. Most of the reviews hated both the libretto and the music. The characters were repulsive and uninteresting, the music too Wagnerian. The leading lady, Galie Marie's interpretation of the title role was described by one critic as the very incarnation of vice. But the poet, Théodore de Bonville, applauded Bizet for presenting a drama with real men and women instead of the usual opéra comique puppets. In the end, he and Bizet turned out to be right. <laughs> Thank you. 
But if you're looking for a composer who tore up the rulebook of classical music and loved to fly in the face of convention, the man for that surely has to be Ludwig van Beethoven. His nine symphonies are more central than any other to the concert series of orchestras and to the output of record companies. How many recordings of Beethoven's symphonies do you have on your shelves, I wonder? And yet, in his day, this composer was regarded as more of a hooligan than a hitmaker. Back in 1803, what other Viennese composer would have had the idea to create a symphony in honour of the French revolutionary hero Napoleon Bonaparte? A man who the composer saw as the embodiment of his own ideals. A hero who would lead mankind into a new platonic age of liberté, égalité and fraternité. Even though Beethoven angrily went back on his idea, feeling that Napoleon had betrayed him and retitling the work Sinfonia Eroica, we still have the massive scale of the work and the sense that this music encapsulates something immense. As Beethoven put it, immortalising the memory of a great man. The scale of the Eroica was quite unprecedented and you only have to look at Beethoven's sketchbooks to see that putting the piece together didn't come easily at all. The bare bones of the massive first movement were jotted down and reworked several times before being fleshed out. And there's a paradox here. Although it's probably the longest single piece of music that Beethoven had written up to that point, it's based on several short melodic ideas. Add to that a few other innovations, using three horns instead of two, one of which plays a deliberate wrong entry in the music. And it's not hard to see why the Eroica's first performance left audience members and critics confused, and that included even some of those who were on his side. As the report in the Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung sorrowfully puts it, this reviewer belongs to Herr von Beethoven's sincerest admirers, but in this composition he must confess that he finds too much that is glaring and bizarre, which hinders greatly one's grasp of the whole, and a sense of unity is almost completely lost. But that's Beethoven for you, a genius composer who was far ahead of his time. While he may not have found success in his day, he certainly has it now. And if any one work showed the way for the new Romantic Symphony in the 19th century, this was it. But to draw this discussion to a close and to complete the picture, what about the final piece, you might say, in the jigsaw? What about a composer who has written a hit, who then resents it thereafter? Sounds strange. But popularity can be a trap, and it can lead to you being written off as a one-hit wonder, when, in fact, you might want to be remembered for bigger and better things. This is what Jean Sibelius found when a melancholy tune he wrote for a play written by his brother-in-law, Arvid Jörnefeldt, became a worldwide hit, his Vals Triste. What compounded the agony for Sibelius was that a few months after he wrote the piece, he was forced to sell the rights of it because he'd run out of money. Two years later, the work was being played and sung right across the world. As for his other music, Finlandia became a global favourite both in its original version and in arrangements for all sorts of combinations from military band, choir and orchestra, and even there's a version for marimbas. I was once asked for permission to make a jazz version of Finlandia, Sibelius once said. I answered that I was deeply hurt by such a question. On the back of his vast triste experience, it's no surprise that commercial success was a touchy subject. 
And yet Sibelius in his early years did have a knack of writing an unforgettable tune and making a hit out of it, even if it wasn't the kind of success he was looking for. Listening to great music like this, it's impressive how effortless it sounds. You might be forgiven for thinking that writing hit music can't be so hard after all. Just pick up pen and paper or fire out some music notation software, arrange some notes in the right order, and you're home and dry. But of course, creating a popular hit is much more elusive than that. Otherwise, we'd all be multimillionaires by now, wouldn't we? You're listening to RTE Lyric Live 